HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network. It's me, with me, Erica Wides, your faithful, loyal host. And um, so last week I didn't do a live show because I was getting ready to do a performance of a comedic storytelling piece I've been working on. And so I had to run and do that. Um... And then I did it on Saturday night. I did my live comedic storytelling piece. Thank you very much. 30 minutes live, memorized, sort of. And it uh, went pretty well. Got to say, it went pretty well. It's kind of scary to stand up there for 30 minutes on stage. Plus, there was like a whole dance component to it. I was dancing and like voices. It was a lot. Anyway, if you may remember that in March, I did the shorter version, Codworms. It's called Codworms. Now it's called Codworms and Devil Dogs. I did Codworms in March, and that was like 12 or 13 minutes, and then I read that to you guys on air afterwards in March. Yeah. So now it's called Codworms and Devil Dogs, and now it's 30 minutes long. And um, you know what? 
I'm just going to do it here today on the show because uh, I didn't write anything else for you because, you know, I've been busy. Um, so here we go. Part two or version two of Codworms live. Codworms and Devil Dogs. We'll probably take one little break in the middle. Um, and then let me know what you think. I want to hear from, from my few proud, humble, loyal listeners. Let me know. Okay. It starts off the same way as the other one. Cod are bottom feeders. Yeah, cod, uh, the fish, yeah, the state symbol of Massachusetts, bottom feeders. They vacuum up the crap on the ocean floor and eat it and pick up worms in the process. Tiny, thin red worms that eat into their flesh and live there. The worms are harmless to the cod and harmless but gross to the cod eating people. But when you're the cod cooking person, you have to pluck those worms out with fish tweezers before you cook the fish. But a little secret I'll share with you is that if you miss a worm and then you cook the fish, the heat makes the worms wriggle up to the surface so you can grab them before it hits the table. The perfect slab of snowy white fish flesh. You get a second chance to force those fuckers out. I know this because for the last 23 years, I have plucked the codworms. I pluck codworms because I'm a chef. I am a chef because I was a lonely, food-obsessed fat kid who took solace and comfort in food. I soothed myself with it. I loved it, and I hated it because I loved it. Food had total control over me. Food was my abusive boyfriend. He was so bad and yet so good, and I couldn't get enough of him. Even at 11 years old, I came back for more. I wanted to marry him, be with him, die with him forever. And chefs, you know, basically we marry food. That's what you do. You spend your nights together, your weekends, your holidays, your hungover mornings, your 3 a.m. grilled cheese, injuries, insults, abuse. You have to learn to get along and learn to live with each other. You made that butter-stained bed, and now you guys have to sleep in it together forever. Now, in the 1970s of my childhood, nobody became a chef. That's like what old French guys on TV did. Nobody ever said to me, hey, lonely fat kid. You love food. You're creative. You should be a chef. Later, anyway, at art school, my artwork was filled with food imagery. So it kind of made sense. And by the 90s, it was a totally legit career choice. Now, most Jewish kids like me from the better suburbs, not so much like me, tend to do pretty well in life, often even better than our parents. Our parents invest in that process it's part of our religion be a doctor be a lawyer be whatever just to be be something that's really good that we can brag about to our friends well not my parents not bernie and rita wides yeah wides you all know my last name wides w-i-d-e-s a fat kid named wides now bernie and rita are very short people so they get married it's 1962 And that's a perfectly legit reason for commitment. But they soon realize that it's a mistake. My father, a narcissistic, thwarted bohemian, freaks out in the suburbs and takes his resentment out on us. And my mother is a Holocaust refugee with PTSD. They don't really get the typical Jewish parenting memo. They're not high functioners as parents. They can't really do it right like the other families around us. We're lower middle class in an upper middle class town. 
So we take the obligatory ballet, music, tennis lessons. But when it starts to actually cost money, real money, or take up any other time, it's yanked out from under us. Sick. Over and over again, it happens. It's like they were saying to us, you can taste middle class life, but you can't have the whole bowl of it because we don't deserve it. That's the theme, the underlying theme of our family novel, not deserving. Don't desire, no wants, no needs, but not in any kind of like enlightened Buddhist kind of way. No, my father's punishing us for his stupid choices. And as far as my mother is concerned, just being alive is enough. Don't tempt it. Don't ask for anything because you never know when the Nazis are going to knock down the door. Are you clothed and fed and housed? It's enough. Now, I'm eight. And Dr. Stavroulakis, Greek pediatrician, slides the bar on the scale, looks down at me and says, You are gaining too much weight. You need to come back back every month. We weigh you again. You keep weight chart. You go on diet. No more bread. No potato. That same spring, Wayne McGrath, a mean boy who I perversely have a crush on, looks at my upper body and says, you have fat arms. I never even knew I had arms until that day. Now all I can think about is my fat arms. I won't even go sleeveless again until like 2011. Later that summer at Sears, the sales lady looks at me and says, mm, you better take her to the husky section, hon. Husky. Like I'm a sled dog or something? But they're really cute. Who knew I was so visually offensive? I really just want to go home and play with my unpeopled dollhouse to take my X-Acto knife and carve old crayons into tiny cheeses and cakes and maybe obsessively retile their bathroom with watermelon seeds. Because, yes, that's what I did. Now, my mother, at my age, eight or so, is trapped in Nazi Europe. There's no food. Her grandparents starve to death. Her mother and her aunt have to bury them with their hands in the frozen Russian tundra. Like something straight out of Tolstoy. Hitler's army is coming. They flee to the east, hide out the war in Uzbekistan, escape extermination. My mom says that all she can remember from then is that to her child eyes, the people on that almost Asia edge of Europe have no noses. She's used to Russian Jews with our more muscular noses. My mom's codworms are a little hardier. They can take the chill. They're kind of harder to pluck. But referencing her own childhood diet of grass soup and stolen bread, she takes up my cause. Everybody move over. Erica's on a diet. We all have to adjust. It doesn't work, of course, because the more they tell me I'm too fat, harangue, cajole, barter, the more I overeat in an anxious, reactionary, shame-filled way. I'm even offered a trade deal. I can get a dollar for every pound lost. That's serious money in 77 to a kid, but I, but I just can't do it. Snacks and sweets are banned, and now I'm a tiny junkie looking for my chance, my moment to steal a fix, to grab a few quarters from the kitchen change jar. I take that change and I walk the mile to our town straight downhill and then the mile home straight back uphill again, panting and hauling my sweating chubby body just to buy forbidden treats. Devil dogs, three musketeers bars, pink coconut snowballs. But they're all just gateway drugs. I need a cleaner, purer delivery system. I go back downtown to the ye old-fashioned candy store in our touristy town. The, you know, the kind with the jars on the shelves with Swedish fish and the bridge mix. 
And I go in and I buy hunks of just solid chocolate, raw and uncut. That was the real fix, the best high, the most efficient delivery system for the numbing that I needed. Give me a quarter pound of milk breakup, I tell the lady. Forget the nougat and the caramel and the coconut. I'm mainlining now, and my drug is called chocolate breakup. Chocolate breakup, just thick slabs of chocolate sold by the ounce, just like drugs. Chocolate breakup. As if that would ever happen, who would break up with chocolate? Not me. Because chocolate never slept with its wife's best friend to intentionally set the wheels of divorce in motion. Chocolate never accidentally dropped its towel on the way out of the shower to expose himself to you. Chocolate doesn't drive so recklessly with you in the car that you were sure it was trying to kill you. Chocolate doesn't do that. Chocolate just loves you. It doesn't make you go on family canoe trips in thunderstorms, make you paddle an aluminum canoe with lightning flashing overhead through raging rapids with your mom in the boat who can't swim and never learn because you can't swim away from Hitler. I'm not the only addict in the house either. The towel dropper hides jumbo-sized Cadbury bars in his night table and then makes us all go macrobiotic and eat alfalfa sprouts and drink the broccoli cooking water. We eat those meals feeling punished for existing and ruining his sex life, and he sneaks upstairs to gorge on his hidden stash. I'm working the pizza oven station. It's mounted above my head, and every time I reach up, my forearms sear like raw hamburger on the 900-degree metal, and I have oozing, angry burns along my forearms. I show my burns to the chef, and he just laughs and says, <laughs> That's the pizza oven! And my mascara sizzles on my lashes every time I peer in the oven, so I stop wearing it because who cares what you look like in a kitchen? And I learn very quickly that when you're a chef, crazy shit happens to you. Shit you put up with because it's part of the game. Don't question it. Don't ask for better. Don't call in sick and don't cry. At least not where anyone can see you. No needs, no wants, no desires, but not like in a Buddhist kind of way. Oh my God, it's like I went to work for my parents, but who's going to kiss my angry burns? The late 1970s economy is bad, so my mom goes back to work. My sister and I are older, we have house keys now, and my father encourages it. She'll need the job soon since he's planning his escape. He's sleeping with my mom's best friend, Rochelle, a divorced single mom he introduced her to so she'd be around us more. Rochelle, in turn, is also sleeping with my father's best friend, Sim. It's all very cozy until Rochelle ultimately breaks up both families. Her son, Josh, is three, and my sister and I babysit him sometimes after school. We take him on long walks to the park so that my dad and Rochelle can talk at her house while my mother's at work. Josh grows up to be an anorexic rabbi. He marries a female minister who turns out to be a lesbian. You see what happens when you fuck with the nuclear family structure? All hell breaks loose. My sister's never home anymore. She's at ballet class all the time. She's on scholarship. Things look pretty good. She's a tiny ballerina with professional promise. But then, oh no, puberty. Hips and boobs. Not what you want on a ballerina. Um, <coughs> sorry, Judy. Uh, <coughs> you're out. Well, maybe if you starved yourself. I don't know. Think about it, all right? All the other girls are doing it. It's okay. But for now, 
I'm left alone in the afternoons with no supervision, so I indulge my addiction in tortured peace. If I'm out of chocolate breakup, I just fill the void. I know how to bake. I know how to make icing. Powdered sugar and whipped butter icing so sweet that it hurts and gritty and greasy from what's probably margarine, but I don't care. I make a little bit. Just enough to get the high without denting the groceries, and I eat it slowly while watching Miguel a Gorilla or Bewitched or The Munsters. The icing makes two little pads of fat that mimic boobs and require a tiny bra. Five years in, I'm promoted to sous chef. This is a big deal. I'm nervous and I'm rushing before my first chef shift of the new job, and I'm carrying a steaming hot pot of thick, sweet sauce down the steep steps to the basement. The pot slips from my hands and it lands miraculously still upright, but the sauce shoots straight up like a geyser and it coats not just my face and my eyes, burning them cloudy, but the walls and the ceiling and all the basement Mexicans. And they, of course, have to clean it up. And my face is burning, but I'm so sorry, amigos. I'm so sorry, Jose, and I'm so sorry, Junior. Junior, who'll die five years later at Windows on the World, 107 stories up from the basement. And I have to start lunch service, but I go into the walk-in where the chilly air cools my burning face, and I cry and I cry, and I wish I loved myself more. Worms are wriggling down my sweaty back, looking for a way out. Everything is forbidden. Sugar cereal, snack cake, soda, all of it. Oh, except Fig Newtons. They're a special treat. (laughs) We eat Kellogg's Product 19 cereal. Do they still make that shit anymore, Product 19? It doesn't even have a real name. We have to eat it with extra wheat germ on top. My father calls it wheat hearts instead of wheat germ to make it more appealing. You know what's actually appealing to a 10-year-old? Crunch berries, cookie crisp, Captain Crunch, tricks, lucky charms, count chocula. Even corn checks would have been a treat. But all I really want now are devil dogs. I'm 11. I've broken up with breakup, and now I'm dancing with the devil and his brown cake log, his white cream filling. But no, the devil won't enter this house. We bake. We eat homemade. Pumpkin bread, banana bread, peach pies, birthday cake, all delicious, but none filling the white, hot, angry hole in my heart that can only be filled with the devil's dog. And I'm so angry at so much now and so resentful that I stand chubby legs apart, fist raised in the air, and I vow, when I grow up, all I'm going to eat are devil dogs, and you can't stop me! But I didn't. Other kids have endless junk food in their houses. Nothing is forbidden. They're nice moms with their frosted hair and sporty cars. Buy them whatever they want to eat. Nothing is forbidden, so nothing is craved, hoarded, obsessed over. They're not tiny junkies. My best friend gets a snack cake in her lunch bag every day. Every day! Who gets that? She's a thin kid, no issues, no obsessions. We sit together at lunch, and she shares her treat with me. Every day, her generosity is befuddling to me. She's fine with half a ringding. Her brain is satisfied with half a devil dog. I can't even imagine one of those in my paper bag, let alone sharing it. 
If I get one myself, bought in secret, I eat it feverishly like a starving dog, channeling my grandmother in Russia, pouncing on a fallen loaf in the bakery where she worked as an armed guard, keeping out the hungriest. I eat every crumb, lick the plastic wrapper, inhale any lingering scent, and cry out inside for more. It's never enough. I'm still a sous chef, and I'm underpaid. So I work coat shifts for a coat check shifts for extra cash. I make more in a coat check shift than I do in a day's sous chef salary. Schlepping furs for Euro trash tourists up and down the, st- the stairs. Tourists who pretend they don't know about tipping. The Germans are the worst. It's like they can smell the past on me and they need to stick the knife in even further. But I'm on to them. I internalized all that fear, all that anti-Semitism, and I took four years of German. Hey, Fritz, don't play dumb with me. Ich spreche Deutsch, so pay up. And why are all the coat-checking tourists in my memory always German, Italian, and Japanese? Where are the allies to rescue me? Who's going to save me from extermination under the fur heap? Arbeit macht frei my Jewish ass. I cook through a broken toe, a UTI, an unwanted pregnancy, the flu, with searing pain in both feet, a frozen shoulder, tendinitis, and I lie. Chefs lie. About veal that's really pork. About wormy cod being black sable. About chickens roaming free. About life. Where am I going? What am I doing here? What do I really want? What do I deserve? Lucille, my therapist, says to me, You can deserve things, you know. It's okay. The war is over. You're not your mother. But I still lie to myself, to my customers, and about men. I get involved with all the wrong guys. You don't meet the right ones because cook's hours don't match up with normal people's hours. And just because you work saute and he works the grill does not make for the basis of a healthy relationship. You may have married food when you became a chef, but it's an open marriage. You can sleep with all the cooks you want. Food doesn't care. He kind of likes it. But something's still wrong here. What have I done? This isn't what I thought my life would be, and I cry again in the walk-in, crouching behind a smiling dead pig in a box. Three different fingertips are nearly severed off, and each one just sewn back on. The first one sliced off by a pot falling from above. The second one by cracking a coconut the wrong way. And the third one, a freak accident years later at a viewing party for my episode of Chopped, the Food Network show on which I come in second. Insult? Meet injury. One thing, though, about being married to food is that you stop being obsessed with it. It's just food. I'm still named Wides, but I'm not the fat kid anymore. Okay, so here there's a little visual joke that I will just tell you. I go to pick up a cell phone and dial it, but then I stop and say, oh, wait a minute. It was the 90s, so I put the cell phone down and I pretend to pick up a regular landline phone, okay? Listen, food, um, I'm having some second thoughts about things, so uh, I think we should talk. Uh, I think I need some space, okay? The humiliation of the monthly doctor's visits are brutal. It's his idea, Dr. Stavrilakis, Greek pediatrician. He thought if I weighed in every month, it would motivate me, but the visits just make me feel worse, embarrassed, ashamed, and every month he forgets why I'm there. I actually have to say it. 
I'm here because you think I'm too fat. Remember? And I get on the scale again. I have to record the number on a chart on our kitchen wall. And I write down the numbers. 58, 60, 62. My teenage uncle lives with us now, and he thinks it's really funny to write ones in front of the numbers each month. 158, 160, 162. My teenage uncle grows up, becomes Hasidic, a black hatter with five kids, and is addicted to his own religious self-righteousness. Oh, but he's also got a son who's a heroin addict, but I'm not laughing at him. I understand addictions. Devil dogs and heroin fill the same hole. They're legit. But religion is a cop-out addiction. I have no sympathy. I'm tired of restaurant work, so I leave to teach. I don't know half the stuff I'm teaching, so I just make it up because I didn't go to culinary school, just art school. And I have to teach old school French stuff. Rue, Rui, Roulade, Fagot. But these are good lies. Nobody knows. I'm always one step ahead. Addicts are nimble. I learn fast. I learn how to teach, too, and um, I'm really good at it. I first teach at a school for ex-criminals and convicts where we learn how to use a knife appropriately. I move on to a fancy white kid's culinary school where all you need to succeed is $40,000 and a delusional dream. And what do I learn? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't teach him how to boil it. I attend my sister's ballet school, too. Simply so there's someplace to park me while she takes her hours and hours of classes. We get a deal on my classes. It's part of her scholarship. We're taught by Valya Papadopoulos a chain-smoking, washed-up Greek ballerina with a hugely obese husband. I learn about irony as she tells me I'm too fat for ballet and hits me with her stick. I'd much rather be taking gymnastics. Across the hall from the ballet school, I stare in longingly at those compact girls flipping and flying. I think I'd make a kick-ass gymnast. I'm solid and stoic like those Romanian girls on TV. It's the bicentennial. America turns 200, and a great miracle happens. I get to go to camp. Mercifully, it's not softball in the hot sun camp. No, I get to go to Usedan. It's an art camp that's like college for creative kids, and it is a miracle. Plus, we get financial aid to, to attend, so my parents love it because they need their money for their lawyers now. And I love it because I get to take modern dance and painting and sculpture. At camp, I'm free. I hate ballet. But I love to dance, and I discover Martha Graham-style modern dance, all pelvic contractions and flailing limbs, no skinny, perfect ballet arms, no pointless yearning for point shoes. They don't put the fat girls on point. Just pure, free movement. We dance for an hour every day in bare feet, and then two hours of art in an open-air studio, the best four years of my life. Except... Except that my dance teacher takes every opportunity she can to remind me of the obvious literally every day. Erica, you shouldn't be eating that. You're too fat. Erica, how will you be able to dance in the show? Erica, does your mother know that you're too fat? I just want to flail my arms, be Martha Graham, stick out my ass and turn my toes inward. I want to undo all the ballet, shake out all the ballet worms, contract and release them. They're insidious fuckers. They crawl right up your leotarded ass, so you have to keep it all tight and tucked under so they won't slide down your pink tights. And that skinny bitch tries to kill it for me. On top of that, camp tradition means ice cream at day's end every day. It varies ice cream sandwiches, paper-wrapped cones, fudgesicles, and every day... 
for four summers every day as I walked to the bus covered in clay and stone dust and sweat and happiness. I tell myself, no ice cream, no ice cream, no ice cream, no ice cream. And every day as they hand it out, I take it and I eat it guiltily on the bus. And every night when the subject of dessert comes up and my mom eyes me and asks if I ate the ice cream that day, well, what do all addicts do best? I lie. No, I say. No, I didn't eat it. And she hands me my Fig Newton. I teach culinary school for 15 years. 15 years, and I eat some crazy shit. I'm served fish with the scales still on it. I'm served an iceberg lettuce-filled omelet. I taste and grade 16 bowls of mayonnaise every month for 15 years. The second best way to cure a food addiction? Teach culinary school. It can make you hate food. Almost. I don't hate food. I still love it. But uh, food and me, we reach an agreement. Hey, food? It's me, Erica. Erica Wides? Yeah, listen. I think we need to talk again. Yeah, um, I think we both know it's over. Well... It's called conscious uncoupling. I mean, it worked for them. All right, cool. Great. Okay, bye. Food and me, we're good. We're friends now. My parents, well, they never speak again. But my worms are gone now. I'm plucked and I'm clean. I'm a top feeder, happy and content like a dolphin. Oh, and um, I don't eat devil dogs anymore. Actually, I never did. And I certainly don't eat cod. Well, that's it. Codworms and Devil Dogs, version two, the 30-minute version, took up the entire show. I didn't even get to stop for a break. But uh, that's about it for this week of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. I would love to hear what you think about that piece. I'm going to be expanding it to almost an hour and performing it, hopefully, in November at Solocom here in New York. If all goes well, we'll see what happens. So uh, thanks, Dave Tat. As always, Thank you to Peter Michael Marino for teaching the class in which I, ta- I developed this piece. You were amazing. This one goes out to you. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.